When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Hello and welcome to this week's Intelligence Squared podcast with me, Farah Jassat. And me, Daniel Ben-Koren. This week, we interview the journalist Mark Galliotti about Putin and Russia. Daniel, he's written a book about Russia, hasn't he? Yep. So his book is called We Need to Talk About Putin, Why the West Gets Him Wrong and How to Get Him Right. So Mark Galliotti is one of the UK's top Russia experts, and he was interviewed by Edward Lucas, who's a columnist for The Times. Just before we go to this week's episode, if you're interested in coming to any of the Intelligence Squared events that happen live in London, go on our website at intelligencesquared.com and we can offer you a special 20% discount. Just type in the promo code podcast at the checkout. We've got an event on the 29th of August in Houston with Salman Rushdie, which is going to be really interesting. So check it out on our website. Hope to see you there. And we hope you enjoy listening to this week's episode. Hello, I'm Edward Lucas and welcome to this week's Intelligence Squared podcast. You can sign up for regular updates about podcasts and other events at intelligencesquared.com and you can follow me on Twitter at Edward Lucas. Mark, to start off with, you are writing this book in a way as a not just an explanation of what's happening in Russia, but also as a critique of what um, other people get wrong about Russia. So could you start off by outlining, perhaps with a bit of caricature, what you think the conventional wisdom on Russia is and where it's wrong? Yes, I mean, as as you say, this book is in in many ways simply a rant. Um, And my view is that although there's a lot of very, very good scholars and academics and policy experts who are looking at, at Putin... By the time we actually get to policy and the sort of public level of discussion, we do get these caricatures. And particularly the caricatures that bug me the most. First of all, it's this idea that Putin is this brooding grandmaster behind pretty much everything that happens in Russia. And indeed, for that matter, almost everything that goes wrong outside of Russia. Secondly, that Putin is this thoroughly trained KGB agent with a great mastery of, of its dark arts. And thirdly, and look, there are many others, and I'm not, I'm not going to go through all of them, But thirdly, also that the basic idea that essentially Putin has has a a vision, a dream, a philosophy. 
rather than just, in my opinion, being essentially a, an opportunist, often bumbling from one attempt to advance his own aims and bring us down to the next. I think this theme of coherence and incoherence is a very good framework for looking at your book, that from the outside people assume that there's a coherent mindset, a coherent strategy, a coherent toolkit, a coherent vision and so on. And from the inside, the more one knows about Russia, the um, more happenstance um, plays a role and the more the internal contradictions in all these things play, um, play a part too. Um, but I, I wanted to kick off um, next just by um, the three questions you pose, which are very good ones. Who is Vladimir Putin? What's he want? And what he's going to do next? I think we should kick off with the first of these. Who is Mr. Putin? It's very easy to dismiss him as a KGB guy. It's very easy to say he's just the, you know, the capo di tutti capi, the boss of a mass, mafia state. Um, it's easy to say he's just a bureaucrat who's got lucky. Um, so outline for us, the first of all, the personality of Vladimir Putin, what formed it and what we should make of it. Well, and obviously, I mean, this is wandering into the realms of, of pop psychology and trying to crawl into the deep, dark recesses of Putin's mind and soul, which are not necessarily comfortable places to find yourself. But, no, but my take is, actually, if we look at, look at his trajectory, I mean, this is a guy who was born amidst the you know, literal ruins of Leningrad, as was then St. Petersburg now. He clearly was not one of nature's scholars. He was basically more of a, a bruiser and a brawler as a kid than anything else, but these were tough times. And yet, even so, when he was still a school kid, I and mean, this is a guy who went to the much-feared offices of the secret police, the Bolshoi Don, the big house, and said, excuse me, how do I join? Which, from the, by all accounts, seemed to have even taken aback the hardened spooks that he went and spoke to, who basically said, run along sunny, go and get a degree. And even then, he said, well, what would be the best degree? And they said, well, I suppose law. And indeed, off he went to go and get a law degree. Now, to some, that's a sign that he was going to destined to be, to be a, a spook or whatever. But when one looks at his subsequent trajectory, I mean, what I think is in many ways is Putin has, has long been looking to have a gang, a, a group of people on whom he could rely. This is not a man who actually seems to make friends easily. Um, but on the other hand, he has a small team of people on whom he absolutely relies and, and whom he looks after, regardless of whatever else they do. And so whether we're talking about his, his school times, whether we're talking about his joining the KGB, at which he was fairly mediocre by all accounts, and then subsequently when he was in this chaotic world of 1990s Russia, when everything was up for grabs and everything was being redefined, each time he seems to have been trying to find a, a team of people. And, and that, what, I think, is what kind of has, has very much shaped him. And what puzzles me and many people is that the Soviet Union was full of Putins, full of people with... Um, fairly scrappy upbringing, people who found their identity and their loyalty in some different bit of the Soviet system, whether it was the intelligence services or the, the military or some other bit of the uh, state or the Communist Party. And they were you know, pretty much diced out, you know, rather you know, grey, obedient people, not much initiative and so on. So there were tens, hundreds of thousands of sort of Putin-type people around when the Soviet Union collapsed. And what was it that lifted Putin out of that and into the realm of high politics and eventually the top job? What's the thing that he's really good at that people didn't, didn't spot back then? I mean, to, to a large extent, it's worth saying I think he was lucky. But beyond that, I think his, his real knack had been to identify people on whom to fasten and, in a way, to make himself other people's absolutely vital 
bagman and, and basically backwatcher. He did it when, when he came back to, to his hometown, came to St. Petersburg, with Mayor Sobchak, basically became his deputy mayor and gen- general fixer, and indeed the guy who got Sobchak on a plane to get him out of the country ahead of an arrest warrant. Then he went to Moscow and he worked in the presidential administration's property department, which was, even by the standards of the Russian presidential administration, phenomenally and notoriously corrupt. And again, he became the number two, but the guy who looked after his boss. Then ultimately, you know, he he became head of the Federal Security Service and then prime minister precisely because he seemed to be reliable. He seemed to be safe. He seemed to be a guy that other people could trust to have their backs. And so in this way, it's strange how this very grey individual, I mean, this is one of the reasons why there's so many myths about Putin, is because precisely he is such a blank canvas in so many ways. But I think it's precisely he rose by being useful to the right people and then suddenly found himself at the top of the system and in some ways has thrived and in some ways has also been actually quite rudderless. And let's look at the difference between the Putin of 1999, the man who emerged literally blinking into the limelight as prime minister who looked absolutely terrified when people said you could, yeah, he was on a television interview and they said you could be the next president. And he said, well, I'll do what I'm told. And, you know, from the man now who has become a kind of, you know, almost kind of comic book action hero with all this kind of uh, very macho behaviour, the one who quite effortlessly conducts four and a half hour press conferences in a way that would leave most um, Western politicians feeling a bit exhausted who shows quite a steely command of, of events and affairs and of, of, of people. How has Putin developed between, in the 20 years that he's been at the top? Well, I, in some ways, I, I would regard this to, as to be, in a way, a bell curve, a rising and then falling trend. Absolutely. When, when he first came into office, there was clearly a sense of bewildered cluelessness behind the fact that he was also, you know, he is clearly a a, a dis- self-disciplined and disciplined individual. I mean, hence also the judo, the swimming, the keeping fit and such like. I mean, actually, he, he has, when he sets himself targets, he has a tendency to achieve them. But nonetheless, I mean, he clearly had, through the, through the 2000s, begun to grow into the job. And in part because it was a really easy time to grow into the job. Um, international relations were relatively positive because the West was so consumed by the sort of global war on terror and he could basically present himself as a potential ally. But more to the point, the economy was doing well. After so many bad years, all of a sudden, Putin had money to throw at every single problem and every single group of individuals. So, I mean, in a way, Putin himself grew into the, into the job at a time when it was easy to grow into the job. But at the same time, as he did that, so too did his ambitions and expectations grow. And this is one of the reasons, I would say, for, for the worsening of relations with the West that started really quite early and really, by the time we had the 2007 speech he gave at the Munich Security Conference, you know, clearly had become a sense of angered and almost bewildered embitterment. This is a guy who basically felt that everything should fall into place. And the West, we were not acting the way he felt we should be acting. He didn't really have the imagination and the understanding. Well, I want to get on to the sort of relations sure. with the West a bit, a, bit, a bit later. But he has become a kind of, it's a bit of a cliche to say he has a sort of monarchical or czar-like role, but he is basically a kind of, a kind of czar now. And it's, it's... He's a kind of czar, but exactly, he, he's moved from being a chief executive to a czar. And in some ways, that's actually a, a mark of, of, of weakening. Um, you know, he, he, he was at his peak, and then for constitutional reasons, he sort of stood down with this sort of strange um, swap he did. His, his, his tame prime minister became yeah. the sock puppet president, Medvedev. And he became this was in the empowered yeah. prime yeah. minister. 
if, if we look at his trajectory since then, though, what ironically we have seen on the one hand is actually a continued flourishing of this personality cult of Putin. Again, that, that you know, Putin basically solves everything, knows everything, does everything. But at the same time, actually, we have seen an increasingly um, ham-fisted approach to governing the country and indeed its international relations. And, and also a distancing of Putin from his own people. I mean, he, he is now the Tsar, but remember you know, the old Russian proverb that God is in his heaven and the Tsar is far away. You know, he actually is in many ways not running the country with anything like the kind of control that, let's say, in 2008 he had. I want to get on to the, your very interesting parallel with Putin as Brezhnev, but we'll get onto that towards the end of the podcast. But so the first of the questions is, was who, who is Vladimir Putin? He's gone from being this identical KGB guy, quite mediocre, through to being the kind of quasi-Tsar, and that's obviously a very interesting trajectory. But then there's the second and sort of um, perhaps deeper question of what does he want and it's been – you've outlined some of these already. People see him as a sort of neo-Soviet restorationist and who said the collapse of the Soviet Union was a geopolitical catastrophe or maybe the geopolitical catastrophe. The person who has brought a level of corruption to the highest level in Russia, which actually possibly outstrips even the spectacular um, extent of the Yeltsin years. Someone who's gone after individual freedoms and political pluralism and all the sorts of things that, um, that people at the sort of – soft end of the spectrum as he would see it mind about this sort of quasi-imperialism and so on what what do you think his he actually wants to do and and I mean, you said at the beginning there's no overarching no gazamp concept it's not but but what's what's his what makes him tick well i think what makes him tick are actually very very simple and emotional factors more than anything else i mean on the one level, having climbed to the top of the system, you know, he, he needs security, he needs stability. He's not someone who's looking to just simply um, retire into obscurity. I think he's going to still need his ego assuaged or whatever. But he's also, I think, bored with the job. And he, I think he's trying to square that particular circle. And internationally, I think what he's looking at is, in some ways, not so much kind of specific objectives or square kilometres of territory that he wants to conquer or anything like that, it's rather that he's thinking about his historical legacy and he wants to be the Tsar who makes Russia great again and makes it into a great power. And the thing about power is he understands, at least on this level, that, that power is about perception. He only can make Russia a great power by making us treat Russia like a great power. So I think that's what we're facing. It, it, it's security at home and, as he would regard it, respect abroad. Yeah, security at home and respect abroad. I think that's very good. And you make the point very powerfully in the book that people who try to predict Putin's actions should realise that he doesn't know what he's going to do next. It's not as if he came into power with the sort of mission of, I've got to first of all you know, sort out the oligarchs, then I'm going to sort, sort out the media, then I'm going to sort out um, the neighbouring countries. And, you know, that, it, so there, wasn't really a, there, wasn't, there wasn't really a game plan. Um, but I, you've left out, when you say security at home and respect abroad, an element which many people would say was very important, which is enrichment that Putin and people around him seem to have become staggeringly rich. Though, of course, you know, they deny it. And, you know, no doubt would sue anyone who tried to say it in too specific terms. But um, let's just talk a bit about the business model of the, of, of the Putin regime, the collection of bureaucratic rents and of natural resource rents and their distribution. How, do, how, how does that work and what's Putin's role in it? Well, this is an essentially kleptocratic system, absolutely, that, that the purpose of power is to basically use it to enrich yourself 
And the real currency of this system is not the ruble, nor even the euro, the pound or the dollar, but it is actually political influence and favour, and above all favour with, with the president. Um, so it's all about exactly how you manage to um, obtain access to resources and turn those resources into the kind of quality of life that, that you want. Money itself does not do it. I mean, as we've seen ever since the, the oligarch, the richest man in Russia, Mikhail Khodorkovsky, all of a sudden became one more convict in prison. Um, you can be as rich as you like today, but if you do not have political cover, you are nothing tomorrow. So I think everyone has realized that even the richest people are essentially just money managers for the state. And, and they, they, they have their, their, their wealth in, shall I say, sort of trust by the state. So I think what we've seen with this system is it's, it's a constant and frankly voracious um, churn of individuals trying to acquire some form of political influence, which often means influence over other people, which could be a, a prosecutor or it could be just simply a favorite of, of a minister and then seeing how they can monetize that. Now, Putin was an active player in, that, in the 1990s. Um, if you look at the group, you know, in a way, his gang, the so-called Ozero Collective, of people who had agreeable dachas around the same lake, they clearly you know, worked together to, first of all, plunder St. Petersburg and then move their model nationwide when, when Putin got into big-level politics. Putin himself, though, I mean, I feel in some ways he has outgrown that. Not because of any kind of moral or spiritual development, but because in a way, when you've got all of Russia as your piggy bank, you don't really have to worry too much about the exact state of your bank account, particularly because I do not see Putin as someone who is planning for a post-Russian future. This is not a guy who's planning on buying himself in due course an agreeable villa in the Caribbean and then going doing pro-am golfing with other ex-presidents. This is a guy who's probably going to be staying in Russia, not least to make sure that no international arrest warrants come his way. Mm -hmm. um, and therefore, I think from his point of view, in some ways, he now has all the money he wants and he doesn't need money. If he wants things, he gets the state or he gets oligarchs to pay for it, like his you know, huge palace in, in the south. So I think what Putin is now about is, in a way, looking, it's a bit sort of Maslow pyramid of needs. You know, once you have your food and then you look for your clothes and, of course, you, you, you look for your iPhones or whatever at the top of the and system. And then your self-realisation at yeah, the top. Yeah, exactly. Well, I, I don't think we're necessarily going to be expecting much self-realisation from Putin. But nonetheless, I think here's a point where actually he's looking for intangibles. And above all, I think this means exactly security, prestige and a sense of his stake in Russian history. On the subject of intangibles, one of the things which I thought you could have spent more time on in the book was the role of the Russian Orthodox Church and Putin's certainly outward re religiosity and, as far as we can tell, quite a sincere religious faith. And again, this is quite odd for someone who comes from a KGB background where even going to church would have been enough to have you dismissed immediately, if not actually imprisoned, um, the K KGB. But there's the story of his baptism, the crucifix that got lost when his, um, it was saved from the fire and so on. And now this really quite tight relationship with the Orthodox Church and having a confessor and so on. So Putin, Putin's spiritual side, talk us through that a bit. Well, this is interesting. And, and yes, in some ways I, I, I do skimp on it, in part because it's a short book, but also in part because, um, I mean, for me, we have what seems to be a perfectly sincere religiosity. But in terms of how does it actually affect policy? How does it affect the real world? And the answer is, well... What it has meant is actually he has allowed the Russian Orthodox Church to basically become another state corporation um, in which they may well you know, wear cassocks and have, have crosses on their hats. But nonetheless, actually, this is an exceedingly lucrative business, the, the spirituality business in, in Russia. 
because precisely the state gives it all kinds of perks and opportunities. And therefore, it's often very difficult to actually try and tease out when policy does relate to the church, when, for example, um, you know, it's not just that he, he says nice things about the church, but, for example, he clearly follows the church's lead and policy, such as, for example, when they decided to persecute the, the pussy riot. Um, you know, artists, when they, when they carried out their blasphemous sort of stage act in, in church. Sacrilegious, not blasphemous. Sacrilegious, my apologies. But in that respect, I mean, did he do it because of faith? Or did he do it just simply because it was a favour to an important power institution that does very well by being phenomenally loyal? You know, we, we have the church building or seeking to build a whole new sort of church in, in, in honour of the armed forces. We have priests who go out there and, and bless missiles being sent to Crimea. Um, we, we have priests who basically talk up Putin as essentially the spiritual protector of, of, of Russia. This very, very tight relationship means it's very hard to think of whether the church is just, should be just considered another aspect of the civil service, another aspect of the business community, or something different. I suppose there's an argument that the church has filled the gap left by the collapse of communism, that it gives you something to believe in, and if you um, are sufficiently selective in your approach to the teachings of the church, you'll find out that it would be it bolsters the idea of Russia as, as, as a sort of third, or Moscow as the third Rome, and Russia as the inheritor of the Byzantine Empire, and gives you a, um, at least but some... But it's convenient. But at the same convenient. time, you know, this, this is a country with a huge Muslim population, and actually Putin has gone out of his way to make sure that he's actually quite agreeable towards them and has not sought to bring any form of an Russification, let alone Christianization, to them. I mean, again, I think what, what really strikes me is the extent to which this is a deeply cynical regime that just simply thinks, well, what's going to work? And, and this we see it in its external messaging, just like its domestic messaging. To different audiences, it'll say different things. So absolutely, there, there are those to whom the church becomes a, a vital way of saying, look, this is what it means to be Russian. It's not just about blood and soil. It's also about your, your faith, and this is why you, you follow. But to others, they'll say, well, what does it mean to be Russian? Or maybe it just simply means that you're opportunistic, or maybe it's the culture, or maybe it's because we won World War II, or whatever other message they want to use. Yes, it's quite an eclectic approach. And before we continue, just a short break. Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents. With the code squared, simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV. I want to spend a bit of time now on this kind of you know, the, the, the belief system because both you and I remember the Soviet Union. We're probably among the small number of Westerners who may have actually studied dialectical materialism and Marxism, Leninism, and these sort of. And, and the thing that really strikes me about that is that you could fill a very large room with books on dialectical materialism, Marxism, Leninism. It was, it was a, I mean, flawed but very substantial philosophical um, construct. Again, with you know, roots in Hegel and all the rest of it. You couldn't fill even a small wall in this quite small studio with books that are about Putinism. 
and you've got a novel by Vladislav Surkov, you've got sort of various slightly weird books by Mr. Dugin, the um, philosopher of Eurasianism, you've got the maybe some sort of mystical orthodox stuff, you've got some neo-Soviet stuff, but I mean, it'd be very hard to put that together in a in a coherent school of thought. But we on the outside are always trying to grope for that, we're trying to find out what is the what is the philosophy of, of, of Putinism. And I think in your view, that's just doomed. We, all one has to say is that there are just strands here and they conflict. They conflict and precisely they are tugged on at different times when Putin wants to get different effects. Um, and, and, and I can understand, look, everyone is desperate to find that magic key that will unlock Putin's head. And so that then they can work out what's mm. going to happen next. And there's a lot of people who precisely feel if you can find the right philosopher or the right book or the right school of thought... But no, I mean, I, I think Putin is, is deeply pragmatic and his regime is deeply pragmatic. And the irony is well, what has replaced dialectical materialism? In some ways, history books have. I mean, this is a fascinating thing. If you see this massive explosion of history publishing in Russia and you go to one of the big Moscow bookstores, Moskovsky Domknigi or Biblioglobus, there's a huge array of history books. But increasingly what it is clear is that they're history books written from a particular perspective. They're about the fact that you have this Russian state, and that's what matters. It's a Russian state. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter if at some point it had a red star fluttering on the flag or if at other points it was czarist. It's a syncretic and thoroughly opportunistic cherry-picking of history. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the closest thing to an ideology of Putinism. I think that's absolutely right, but I would perhaps go a bit further and say that the the, the, the common thread to all this, whether it's the... Ruski Mir idea of an orthodox civilization, the Eurasianism of the idea that the destiny is away from the from Western Europe, or whether it's the neo-Soviet side, or the czarist nostalgia, or anything else. The, the common theme in this is anti-Westernism. It's the idea that the West is hostile force that's hypocritical, talks about human rights and rule of law, doesn't really believe in it. It's encircling and surrounding and trying to undermine Russia, and therefore we have to be strong against it. And I, I think it was um, Lilia Shevtsova said this about. Uh, 12, 12 years ago, that anti-Westernism was the organising principle for the, for the Putin regime. Yet, of course, even there, there's a paradox, because it's in the West that they send their children to be educated, it's in the West that they launder and invest their money, and it's um, in the West where they can that they, they, they choose to go on holiday. But, um, but, but how, how do you see the role of anti-Westernism? How far is it sincere and how far is it instrumentalised as a way of keeping everybody in, in line and cheerful? I think it's actually fairly heavily institutionalised. Look, I mean, anti-Westernism, what does that actually mean? I mean, if it means in terms of hostility to the sense that the West tries to tell Russia what to do, absolutely. Also, you know, a set of values that we, frankly, imperfectly embody, but nonetheless that we strive for, which are often antithetical to Russia in terms of rule of law and the equality of the individual and such like. Absolutely, in that respect, we become a problem. Not because I think he has any philosophical problem. He doesn't really care how we live our lives. He cares about the fact that we believe that, that Russia and Russians should have the opportunity to live lives the same way. And the reason why that's a problem is because... Actually, even those Russians who still say that they think Putin is the, the, the finest leader ever and so forth, when they're asked, well, OK, what kind of country do you want? What kind of country do you want for your kids? Just to, to describe it in granular terms, what, what, what do they say? They say things like rule of law, to be able to set up business without some predatory bureaucrat coming and taking it from them, to be able to actually play some role in the shaping of national policy. In other words, Russians themselves, their aspirations are Western ones, and that's what makes it dangerous. And those aspirations are arising, and I, and I would argue have developed a bit, because when Putin first came in, people were very 
bruised or dazed, um, whatever way you want to put it, from the 1990s, where everything had been very um, chaotic, perhaps necessarily so, but perhaps not. And you know, what Putin was able to say is that um, today's going to be pretty much like yesterday, tomorrow's going to be like today, and over time, you know, next year will be a bit better than this year. And for lots of Russians, that was quite a big deal. Add to that you know, a fair degree of personal freedom, to freedom to save, freedom to travel, freedom to choose your employment, place of work, live your life pretty much as you, as, as you want, as long as you stay out of politics. And that's been the longest period of prosperity and personal freedom and sort of broadly put stability in Russia's history ever since the beginning, first time, you know, since Rurik. And that's, that's, quite, that, that's quite a big deal. And in a way, I'm surprised that Putin doesn't make more of that and find, I mean, he finds the need to dress it all up in sort of nationalist bombast when actually, if you simply look at the actual record, it's not at all bad. It's not at all bad, but that's that's in in the past. I mean, actually, electorates quite rightly only give you a certain amount of time in which they they're happy with your past record. Mm. Then they're going to say, okay, but what are you going to offer me tomorrow? And the thing is, the nineteen nineties were horrific for ninety nine point nine whatever percent of Russians, the ones who weren't busy buying themselves bulletproof Mercedes and becoming obscenely rich. But the point is. First of all, there's there's a new generation of Russians for whom this is this it is. wasn't that bad for Vladimir Putin, who didn't have a but. It, it wasn't. Season. I mean, okay, but but again, you know, overwhelming majority of Russians, it, it was a very very hard yeah. time. At the same time, I think that even, even the ones who do remember the 1990s and remember the good years, the, the noughts, they also know that actually since then things have have been changing. That was that was the social contract. That was the deal. You stay out of politics, and in return, your life will get steadily and reliably better. Mm. And for a long time that did, and they were happy with it. But now that social contract has been broken. And what Putin is trying to do is, is precisely, and in this respect, I think you're absolutely right, if you can link it back to your earlier point, is bring in a new social contract, which is to say, OK, so times are hard. But still, the point is, what you must understand is the world is a dangerous place. The world hates Russia. The world hates Russians. And that's why, firstly, we're having a hard time because the, the rest is doing this to us. But secondly, this is why we need to have a security state. This is why we need to have a powerful chief executive to protect Russians. And to be perfectly honest, I don't think Russians are buying it that much. And this is one of the reasons for the astonishingly toxic and hysterical propaganda regime that we have in place. You have to basically continue to ratchet up your, the tone and hysteria of your message if you feel that you're not actually getting through to ordinary Russians. I wish people... Um, listening to this podcast, um, would be able to watch the Sunday night television programmes, the other, the other, and the other ones. It's extraordinary, sort of. It's like something out of nineteen eighty-four. You know, ten minutes of hate, sometimes. But if only if it were only ten minutes. It's yeah. only ten minutes. Yes, a great, great deal more than that. But but I, mean, but I do worry a bit that the and we're getting more perhaps here into what will he do next. That when the regime is sagging a little bit in terms of its popularity and the economic outlook isn't so great, and people are getting a bit bored and fed up, um, quite often. The result, they go for a sort of a sugar rush of some foreign adventure. And we've seen this. And you can argue that the first and the second Chechen war was a way of Putin very quickly establishing his authority as a man who could deal with deal with terrorists. And I can argue how real that threat was in the, back in the beginning and who blew up the apartment block bombings that prompted the whole thing. So, but we saw it again with the, uh, the very popular cyber attack on Estonia, the war in Georgia, the war in Ukraine, the the involvement in the Syrian conflict. And at each point, this gives a chance for him to say Russia really matters. The world is behaving appallingly. These bad people were dealing well, whacking them. Zamochit of Sotiri, whacking them even in the, in, in the outhouse. That presumably must, there must be a risk that he's going to do that again. There is. But in this respect, I am kind of perhaps complacent. But uh, you know, 
feeling that there's not the huge risk that we might think. The thing is, if one looks at these various adventures, the key point is that they have to bring some kind of clearly um, positive result and also to be relatively cheap in terms of casualties. Now, the Second Chechen War was another matter, but even then, they tried to minimise the casualties by essentially Chechenizing it. And that's why they ended up with this monstrous figure, Ramzan Kadyrov, as the new mm. leader of Chechnya, because in a way, that was the price for not actually having so many Russian boys falling and dying in, in, in the mountains of Chechnya. But if you look at, for example, Crimea, that, absolutely, Crimea was, was a, a, the lowest hanging fruit around. It, it, it's something that pretty much every Russian, even the most liberal anti-Putin figure, thinks was rightfully Russian. And at the same time, because the, the, the Ukrainian state was in disarray, the local population felt they'd been hard done by by Kiev and so forth, it was, it was a very easy thing to take. Donbass has actually proven to be really a failure. because, And in, in some ways, my view is still that the, the Ukrainian people should be putting a statue of Putin in every one of their main squares because he has been really the father of a Ukrainian nation in terms of how they banded together. Syria has never really been that popular. Sure, people are happy to watch the kind of war porn movies of, you know, from bomb cameras and such like. But the point is, no one really wants to see their sons being sent off there. And this is one of the reasons why actually we're finding increasingly the, the Russian state having to, in effect, lie to its own people. It, it continues to say it doesn't have troops in the, in the, in the Ukrainian Donbass. Not because it's trying to convince us, but because it's trying to reassure its own people. It used a kind of pseudo-mercenary force for frontline operations in Syria. Again, so that when they have casualties, it can say, well, nothing to do with us. It's just some mercenaries who are engaged by Damascus, even though in practice 96% of these people are, are Russians. So I think actually even the regime itself is aware that all of these foreign adventures actually they begin to bring, come up to the, to the limits of, of Russians' preparedness to do so. Mm. And it's hard to see any other easy ones. I mean, I think, you know, NATO is, is a, an incredibly hard target. There's, there's no um, sort of great un, unexploited opportunity on their borders. Possibly Belarus. Possibly Belarus. But even then, I mean, it's not as though Russians are thinking our life would be so much better if only we had Belarus as part of a union. No, but they might think our country is a bit bigger now. Um, or if, I, mean, I only put that forward because I, I think there are. You're right that he's running out of options, but I, th I suspect there are. Um, I mean, if the urgency to find some sort of geopolitical stunt rises, then the even the less attractive ones become a bit more a bit, a, a bit more possible. But I want to get back to this idea of Putin as as, as Brezhnev and the idea that he you, know, you you've focused your book very much on the personality of Putin. I worry a bit that the problems we have with Russia predated Putin. Putin was a symptom of things that were going wrong in Russia and were going wrong from the early 90s onwards. And I also worry that the problems we have with Russia will outlast Putin. And you say in the book that we may have Putinism without, without Putin. Can you unpick that for us a bit? What, is this because he has sort of so poisoned the public discourse and so um, shaped the institutions and the upper ranks of state in his own image that he's surrounded by mini Putins or and the momentum is behind him or, or is it because he's back Russia into such a dead end that confrontation is the only way out? Well, I mean, first of all, let, let me just pick up on the point you made about, in a way, his own accession, that he, mm. he didn't create everything from, from scratch. We, we must remember, Putin was picked. You know, the people who actually decided that Putin was the good choice for the president and that therefore should be manoeuvred into, into that position. I mean, the various sort of uh, 
trends, the sense that we need to actually save our country from chaos, re-establish its position in the world and so forth. They then picked Putin as their front man. Absolutely. So absolutely, this is part of a process. But if we look to the future, I mean, one of, one of the interesting dilemmas that Russia's going to face as and when Putin eventually disappears from the scene, whether it's that he, he retires or he overdoses on Botox or whatever, is you, you have a, an elite which on the whole I think is ruthlessly self-interestedly pragmatic and kleptocratic. They don't care. They didn't sign up for some grand crusade with the West. They signed up for Against the chance. The West. Exactly. But you know, they, they, they signed up for the opportunity to steal at home and then you know, keep that money safe in, in Western banks and buy agreeable properties in London and send their kids to private schools and, out, out of the country, something that they're now finding harder to do. But then there is also a small circle of people, and these are the you know, people who are close to Putin at the moment, people like the head of his security council, Patrushev, who clearly are genuine believers, who do believe, contrary to all common sense, that, none, you know, that there is some grand Western campaign against Russia, that want, you know, America wants to see Russia dismembered and, and, and so forth. And I think the, the question will be whether or not the, the sort of pragmatic elite will be able to tame and master the handful of zealots. Now, I suspect they will. Um, and you think Putin is more on the side of the zealots than... The, I think he is now. More spook than crook. Yeah, I mean, I think, again, this, this has been his trajectory from, from, from crook, crook to spook. Look, like so many authoritarian leaders, he has, over time, in, in some ways, become a caricature of himself. His circle has shrunk and shrunk. People who were once there and who actually could present alternative perspectives, like Kudrin, his former finance minister, have now basically been squeezed out. He's now sort of in an echo chamber with people around him who are telling him the kind of comforting lies that they think he wants to hear. And I think this is the problem. Mostly dressed up as top secret. And you have a very good bit in the book where you say he sort of spends his time obsessively reading intelligence reports. Exactly. And then again, this comes back to that, you know, that he's always been, he's been a spook fanboy all his, all his life. And, and, and the agencies have, have realised this and played on this and exactly realised that, in fact, well, again, as one, as one intelligence officer sort of told me, you know, they realise that you do not bring bad news to the Tsar's yeah. table. You tell him what he, you think he wants to hear. And so, again, I think this is what's happened, is that the, the cynical opportunist has increasingly become consumed by this sense that he is not just building his own historic legacy, but that he's doing so in a world which is opposed to him and to, and to Russia. Yeah. The question of how seriously to take it is is very fundamental. And there's always been a school of let's just not take it too seriously because fundamentally Russia's not that big economy. It can only attack places it can drive to. It's not a, a real superpower. It's always just it's a nuisance rather than a menace. And there's other people who say that Russia, although is weak in terms of means, is strong in terms of willpower and is very effectively playing divide and rule um, in the West and making quite serious bridgeheads in countries like Germany and Hungary through a mixture of pure economic pressure and perhaps other sort of more clandestine means. Where do you, where do you stand on that spectrum? How worried should we, should we be about this? Um, I mean, I, th I think that we should be worried because the, the kind of power that Russia is mobilising is not the old-fashioned indices. Absolutely, militarily, Russia is strong, but, but nowhere near as strong as NATO. Economically, Russia is not strong. In soft power terms, Russia has very, very little sort of authority in the world. But the whole point is that what we've seen under Putin is, I mean, I, I sort of call it ge guerrilla geopolitics, that they precisely thought, well, OK, so we don't compete. We don't even try and compete on the areas where we know we're going we're to lose. We will move into other areas. And I think what, what Putin has done, 
And in some ways, this goes back to my earlier point about how far he is uh, the, the grandmaster in charge of everything. He's not. He has democratized Russia's campaign against the West, shall we say. He sets very broad policy objectives, which is precisely about neutralizing and dividing us more than anything else, demoralizing us to the point where we feel we need to make some kind of a deal with him. But he doesn't actually spell out how. And so what you have is a huge array of different individuals, groups, actors and institutions who are sitting there thinking, well, what opportunities do we have to possibly further that policy objective? It might be that, you know, one of them, one person is, is, is a businessman who has partners in countries where the sort of the political system is rather fragile through whom he can actually assert some influence. Someone else is going to be, you know, head of a residentura, the head of an intelligence outfit in, in a country. But each of these is going to be trying their own thing. What Putin has essentially done is weaponize the individual ambitions, aspirations and imaginations of lots and lots of Russians. And you call that the adhocracy, which is a very nice term. Which is... Yeah, because, you know, it, in a way, it doesn't matter what your real job is. It doesn't matter what you should be doing. It's, it's how can you be useful to the Kremlin today? Mm. And although, it, yes, it means that the um, overall effort put into any one of these campaigns is, is much less than if it was just sort of that the state just threw everything into it. It's a lot harder for us to try and guess Rather than trying to work out, again, I think this is it, we, we have a tendency often to think that somewhere in some locked drawer in the Kremlin, there is a grand plan that if only one of our James Bonds could get at it and microfilm it, we'd know what's happening. It's not. It's that actually there's lots of people trying all kinds of things and most of them are going to fail. But the Kremlin doesn't mind because a few of them are going to succeed. And that's probably, probably where we should move to the, my final couple of questions, which is what do we do about it? We, we've established, I think, painted a very convincing picture of Russia as this fundamentally opportunistic power, opportunistic in terms of ideology, opportunistic in terms of its um, behaviour at home and its behaviour abroad, but also a malign one. It wants to, it has reasons both internal and external to try and do bad things. What should the West's response be? What should we be doing? Well, first of all, I mean, I think that we need to accept that unfortunately, in my opinion, Putin's policy is not going to change. This is not a man, I think, who has any more capacity to reinvent himself. He's not going to suddenly realise that we're his friends. So in one form or another, I think we will face some kind of campaign like we have faced at the moment for as long as Putin is in the Kremlin. So what we need to do is contain that. We need to actually minimise his capacity to cause mischief. Because the, the thing that we see time and again is not that actually the Russians have magical mind control rays that can take, take us and push us in totally different directions. They exploit all the, the, the flaws, the weaknesses, the idiocies of Western society, all the things that our governments claim to be doing but don't do, whether it's in terms of controlling the flows of dirty money all the way through to actually um, you know, the fact that nowadays we, we have uncontrolled media spaces in which anyone with a, with a Twitter feed is essentially a media outlet. Um, so you know, we need to actually try and address the weaknesses. And it's especially because it's not just about Russia. In a way, Russia has spotted all the opportunities first, but it's going to be terrorist movements or other, other sort of state-level actors who will be using it in the future. So let's use this as a good opportunity to try and not fight this campaign by swatting away each drop of rain, but to fix the roof. So I think that's, that's the, uh, the first answer, is containment and minimising the, the scope that we give the Russians. Secondly, is obviously we need to actually, you know, on, on, on a state level, I think in the past we have tended to speak loudly while waving a small twig. 
we should go back to the the old approach of speaking quietly, it? exactly, and with a big stick. Because I think you know, this is it. We, we speak softly and carry a. Big so stick. I would see less of the kind of um, inflammatory rhetoric, which very much plays with this Russian notion that we're not showing them any respect, that we are treating them badly. But on the other hand, when we do act, as for example happened with the multinational expulsions after the Skripal poisoning, really show absolute not just determination but solidarity. We, we, we have NATO, which has military solidarity. An attack on one is an attack on all. We have failed in the main to have international solidarity on all these non-kinetic, non-military kind of mischief. So let's work on that. And the third and final thing is, look, I'm really struck in Moscow how much the conversation amongst the political classes is about succession. They're already thinking about that ultimately Putin is going to go and what's going to follow. Well, we need to do the same. And I think one of the most crucial things we need to do is do everything we can to to undermine Putin's legitimating narrative that we hate Russians. And again, I think this just comes back to the, to the rhetorical side of things. I would like to see, I mean, I would like to see more Russians being able to, to, to come into the West. Because the ones we have to worry about, they all come on golden visas, diplomatic passports or false documents. But I would like to see ordinary Russians being able to see that we're actually not this horrific, degenerate mess that you exactly that you'll get on your Sunday evening TV viewing. I would like to see more opportunities to actually be able to sort of try and do do what we can, which is going to be hard, but nonetheless try and do what we can to demonstrate to Russians that we have a problem with the Kremlin, but we have nothing but respect for ordinary Russians. Final question. You are one of the very few people who's been studying Russia without a break since the Cold War. I'm perhaps one of the other ones. And I'd like to know what has been the biggest in the nearly 30 years that you've been um, looking at all this. Um, what's been the biggest surprise to you? Was it Putin? The, was Putin a surprise? Has it been a surprise under Putin? What's been your, um, what's, what's really left your, despite your very prescient work, which has very often been right on these things, what, what's the thing that's most taken, taken you aback? Well, I mean, I wouldn't say taken aback, but surprise me, I would say, first of all, it's actually how quickly the chaos of the 1990s was corralled and in fact, Russia got its act together again. I mean, you know, frankly, in, in the late 1990s, and I, I, like many others, was really quite scared about what was going to happen to this country. I thought country. Russia was going to break up. Precisely. And yeah. then, you know, we had these nightmare scenarios of terrorists getting nukes and everything else. Um, in fact, you know, Russia got its act together really surprisingly quickly. And in ways that were, I mean, in some ways horrendously brutal, if one looks at, for example, the Chechen war. But in other ways, actually really quite, quite positive. Um, so, so that was a sort of a, a pleasant surprise. I think the unpleasant surprise is precisely how far what we might think of as Soviet attitudes have, have re- reasserted themselves. I mean, I find this that, you know, I, I will be talking to people and, you know, people whom I've known for, for years or decades um, and who I know don't believe the party line, but who, particularly with anything that's at all public, have very quickly moved back to that sense of, that they will say what they know they need to say. And then in the kitchen, maybe they'll say something different. But the extent to which, actually, it, it, it has been proven that, you know, that, 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 that old defensive attitudes, that when the state cracks the whip, you actually think, OK, then you know, we, we, we need to bend the knee. Well, that has come back in a that horrific way. has been surprisingly durable. And I, I absolutely agree with you. I didn't think that was going to come back so easily. Well, we've had 45 minutes we've barely scratched the surface we can make this into a series of hour-long podcasts and keep going for eternity but we can't so i just want to remind our listeners that you've been listening to the intelligence squared podcast you can sign up for regular updates about 
podcasts and other events at intelligencesquared.com. You can follow Mark Galliotti on Twitter. You can follow me, Edward Lucas, on Twitter. And we look forward very much, Mark, to your next book, which perhaps will be called What to Do About Vladimir Putin. Thank you very much. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships.